how's your day going so far? Very well. Nice sunny day out here in BC. Yeah. Where in BC are you located? I'm in Caslow, British Columbia, which is about 50 minutes north of Nelson on Kootenay Lake. Kootenay Lake. Okay. So did you grow up in the Kootenays? No, I, I grew up in Banff. Um, uh, I was I was raised in Banff, went through school there, and uh, you know I was back and forth to Banff for a number of years. And at one time I was VP at Brewster's in Banff. Oh yes. And I left Banff in 1993, and came out to the Kootenays eventually. So how long were you in Banff at that time? Well, I was born in 1942. I went to Banff in 1948 when my family moved there from Cochrane. Okay. And so I was in Banff from 1948 until I finally permanently left in 93. There was a few years along the way when I was in different parts of the world on jobs and things like that. So, yeah. Your first book, Terry, it's speaking about the stations in Banff and what, what life was like for you there. Um, maybe for the listeners, we can start off by talking about your first book and how you kind of got started in finding a love and a passion for trains. Yeah, I I think that passion for trains has been in my blood. I was born into a railway family. My father was the agent in Cochrane, then we got transferred to Banff. And as the station agent, he was sort of in charge of the operation. Uh, part of the deal was that the, the station agent had a residence and it was located in Banff on top of the station. So from our balcony that overlooked the platform and the tracks, I used to sit out there when I was a kid for hours on end watching the trains come and go. Because back in those days, uh, 12 months of the year, we had four passenger trains east and four west every single day. And they were transcontinental trains, incidentally. And then in the summer, we had a fifth train that was called the Mountaineer. And it came out of Chicago and Minneapolis, then up into Canada. And it was a pure tourist train, really. And uh, that operated uh, the same season as the Banff Springs, which in those days was a summer only hotel. So I think my passion for trains and all things trains began when I was about five or six years old and, and uh, lived at the station and used to run around and watch people getting off and on trains. So yeah, it's been a long time, especially passenger trains, it's been a long time passion of mine. I think as you grew older, Terry, you actually ended up working at the station as well for five years or so, didn't you? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I had always wanted to do, my brother was four years older than me and he became a red cap at the station, uh, putting bags off and on the trains. And um, I always wanted that job. And initially when I was a kid, I, to me, that was the pinnacle. And, and I got a job initially in the baggage room as a baggage porter, putting checked luggage onto the baggage car on the trains. And uh, probably, I think it was in 1959, I ended up getting what I considered my plum job as a red cap. And I worked there through the summers right through 1962. So yeah, I had seven years at the station working, plus all those years that I actually lived there. That first that, book was really about the period of 1948 through 1962, and it was my memoirs of working there and the trains and the people, and yeah. That station, it's still there, isn't it? It's still placed out there. Yes, it is. And uh, 
it was sort of falling apart because when the passenger trains started disappearing uh, in 1990, um, the, the Canadian was pulled off of that line and um, the station was in a pretty bad state of deterioration. And there was even speculation at the time that if somebody didn't do something about it, because the railway not being in the passenger service anymore didn't seem to care. But eventually in about, oh, I think it was 2000, 2014, a company in Banff came along and they took over a lease on the station and they started rehabbing. And when they were re re refurbishing the station, I happened to visit one day and uh, I started thinking that maybe uh, there should be something else to support the renovation because photos and a few nice little things like that weren't going to really tell the story right. of, of what the importance of that station was to the town of Banff because it was the hub of everything uh, that happened when the passenger trains were going. Everything that came to Banff, including people, merchandise, food, perishables, it all came in through the Canadian Pacific Railway Station. So I said to my daughter one day, it's too bad somebody didn't write a book about that. And she typically just sort of looked at me and said, duh, <laughs> why don't you try? And to be honest, I was in my 70s then and I had never written anything mm. other than the odd letter, I suppose. So I thought, well, why not give it a go? I got lots of time in my hands and that's yeah. was, now I've written three books. The third one just got accepted by a publisher and it'll be out in September of 2023, but two of them are now published, yeah. The third one's gonna be exciting. That's on the Sioux Spokane? Yes, it is. It's on, it's on the Sioux line. Actually, the Sioux line was a Canadian Pacific subsidiary in the US mm -hmm. and they actually took control of the Sioux line in 1888 because the, mm -hmm. the, the president of the CPR back then Cornelius Van Horn, who was also the guy that decided they'd build a, a whole fleet of resort hotels. Uh, he knew that their future was, had to be linked to the US, especially in the passenger trains to get the people up to Canada from the most populous place, which of course was the US. You know, when you look back at the entrepreneurship, the leadership, the competition, um, the brash yet the brave of many men and women. Van Horn, JJ Hill, direct competitors, give or take. For the listeners, Terry, who was JJ Hill? Who was Van Horn? And why do they play an important part, especially Van Horn in Canadian history? It's an interesting story that Van Horn and the JJ Hill connection. Uh, let me start with JJ Hill. He he was he was an interesting guy. In the uh, 1870s, 1860s, he was involved uh, uh, with, 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 a, with the fur trade in, in Manitoba. He and his partner, whose name was Kitson, they were trading with the free traders as well as the Hudson Bay Company out of their base, which was in Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Uh, they eventually graduated to a fleet of uh, river boats on the Red River and going up to the Red River Colony, which eventually became Winnipeg. And um, in that time period, he met Donald Smith and George Stephen, who were the initial founders of the CP Rail Syndicate. Uh, George Stephen was the president of the Bank of Montreal, and Donald Smith had been the chief factor of the Hudson Bay Company when it was being sold and turned over to the Canadian government when 
Canada was, was, was preparing itself for confederation. Anyhow, Hill met with them uh, over a number of different issues, including the Riel Rebellion. And in uh, um, the late 18, 1870s, Donald Smith and George Stephen encouraged him and Kitson, his partner, to buy up a railroad uh, in, in Minneapolis that was, uh, was, that was bankrupt and they would help him with the financing. And to make a long story short, he ended up doing that and it became the Manitoba, the Minneapolis, St. Paul and Manitoba Railway. And it linked the Twin Cities in, in, in Minnesota with, with Winnipeg. So in, in uh, 1880, when uh, Stephen and um, Donald Smith formed the Canadian Pacific Railway Syndicate along with a few other people, they encouraged James A. Hill to join with them. And although he had some misgivings, he did. And so he was one of the big three in the Canadian Pacific Syndicate. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, James J. Hill was the guy that hired Cornelius Van Horn, who at that time was the general superintendent of a competing railway in the uh, Minneapolis area, uh, which eventually was called the, the Milwaukee Road. And he ended up hiring Van Horn to become his general superintendent uh, for the construction of the western part of the CP from Winnipeg to the coast. So it, it kind of had an, uh, an interesting start how uh, Hill hired his protege, who was Van Horn. And then by 1883, they started to go sideways in a number of issues, including the route from, uh, from Toronto across the northern part of Lake Superior to Winnipeg. Hill wanted it to dip down to Duluth Minnesota and then come through the states to Minneapolis and then back up to Winnipeg. The Canadian government was the client and they wanted an all Canada route. Um, but Hill wanted it to come down uh, through his part of the world, uh, not surprisingly, because he also happened to own a railroad that would link it. Anyhow, they had a falling out and he was quite surprised that his protege, Van Horn, didn't support him. And that began about a 40-year feud that never, ever, ever healed over. Uh, in a rage, Hill said, that's it. I'm pulling out of the syndicate, and I'm going to build my own railroad. And he did. He built the Great Northern from Minneapolis over to uh, Seattle and completed that in 1893, which was about uh, seven years after the CP was completed. So it was a very convoluted story because even though he and Van Horn went to war, and they literally did, especially in British Columbia, um, he still remained pals with George Stephen and Donald Smith, who were the two head honchos at CP. And in fact, they had huge holdings in his railway company. So it's sort of a twisted web, you know what I mean? Very interesting bit of history. And Van Horn was or originally from the U.S., pretty much became a Canadian and JJ Hill from Canada went to the US. So it's, it's irony at its finest. It really is. It really is. It's a twisted web. It really Absolutely. is what it is. Terry, we have a book here. When trains ruled the Kootenays right here. Yep. Why was this story so important to tell of the Southeastern elements of British Columbia and the railway network? Well, you know, uh, there, there have been a lot of excellent books written about railways in British Columbia, and particularly southern British Columbia. Um, but, you know, they were mostly about uh, the construction and the problems and the maintenance of the railroad, and a bit more rail-centric 
my my book uh, deals deals mostly with the people. And there's a, there's a, a gentleman here in uh, he, well he lives in Nelson and in Gray Creek, which is on the other side of the lake. His name is Tom Limbury. Tom is uh, probably the most eminent historian in this area. He's written a couple of books of his own, and um, he got a. He, I, I met him, and he was. He and I were talking one day, and he said, "You know, a lot of books have been written about the construction of railways, but he said very little has ever been said about the people who used them, and that's when the penny dropped. And I thought, yes, that's the approach I'll take in writing this book." Because you know the the southeastern portion of British Columbia, and that includes Trail, Rossland, Nelson, and the, the Slocan area. Uh, up until about 1930, this was the economic engine for all of British Columbia. And it seems you know because there was huge mineral strikes made here. There was silver, lead, zinc. There was gold in Rossland, and I mean it was a huge, huge part of BC's economy. Uh, at one time, Nelson was 10,000 people, this is back in um, 1890, 1900, as was Rossland. And in fact, the population of the Kootenays back in 1905, for instance, was two and a half times what it is today. That's how huge it was. You know, this big smelter was built in Trail Cominco, which was owned at the time by Canadian Pacific. I mean, it, 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 it's a huge smelter. It's one of the largest silver, lead and zinc smelters. Didn't they the just world. close in not long ago? It's still, right? it's still operative. Still operating. Okay. Yeah. There was um, one of them that closed not long ago, but there was a vol inactive volcano that would produce yeah. gold. I'm not mistaken. Well, well Rossland uh, is, is, is where Red Mountain is, which is now a ski area. The uh, Red Mountain is, in fact, an ancient, ancient extinct volcano. And they discovered gold there. And inside, there were just veins going everywhere of solid gold. And it was one of the richest gold mines that had ever been discovered. And in fact, in terms of today's value, if, if gold was $2,000 an ounce back then, the amount that they extracted would amount to about $80 billion. Oh so of course, back then, gold was a, a set price of 36 bucks an ounce. But even so, I mean, it was huge. Uh, Rossland at one time was the second largest city in the, uh, what they call the Inland Empire. Spokane was the largest. And Rossland was second largest. It was even bigger than the capital of Idaho, which is called Boise. And uh, the, the commerce between Spokane and Rossland was huge because Spokane was the headquarter for the, 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 the stock market uh, for the mining areas of Northern Idaho and British Columbia. The big investors lived in Spokane. They had huge money invested uh, in, in the southeastern British Columbia area. And not only including the silver, lead, zinc, and gold, but also the big coal mines uh, in, in the Crow's Nest Pass. So this really was an economic boom for British Columbia. So this ore is being moved. At this same time, is there passenger trains being utilized on those railways? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was, you know, in those days, Public transportation back then, uh, after the coming of the railroads and the completion of the railroads, uh, was far better than it is today. For instance, in the Kootenays, you could go almost anywhere in the Kootenays in a combination of rail and sternwheeler. Both Canadian Pacific and Great Northern had these big uh, paddle wheelers on the lakes and the river systems here. So 
So you could go from Nelson, for instance, on a paddle wheeler, on a stern wheeler, up to Caslow. You could jump on the train and go from Caslow to Nacusp, get back on another boat and go up to Arrowhead, which is a town that's no longer in existence, and get on the train and go to Revelstoke. Then in Revelstoke, you could go east or west across Canada on the Canadian Pacific. They also built the crow's nest route. Uh, it was completed to Nelson in um, 1890. Well, no, it was completed to Kootenay Landing uh, in 1898, which is on the east shore of Kootenay Lake, <coughs> excuse me, just north of Creston. And from there, you took a four hour uh, sternwheeler trip uh, over to Nelson and got back on the train and continued west. Hmm. Everything in this area was linked. And, and I think one particular story that sticks out is the gentleman I referred to earlier, Tom Limbury. He lived as a child in Gray Creek in on the east shore of the lake. And his dad has, was an initial pioneer, came from England, and in 1915 established a homestead at Gray Creek, a general store, orchard, all the many things you had to do in those days to survive, you know? Anyhow, when the, pardon me, in 1911, and then when the war broke out, First World War, 1914. Uh, he went back to England, enlisted, and he spent four years in that war in the trenches and fortunately survived. But um, when he came back, he had a pretty bad case of arthritis or rheumatism, as they call it in those days. So every year they used to go to a hot spring so he could get some relief because he seemed to enjoy the hot spring therapies. And that was at a place called Halcyon Hot Springs, which is up towards Revelstoke on Arrow Lake. So Tom was telling me about the trip that they would take and they did it every fall after the harvest. They would get on a boat at Gray Creek and go across to uh, uh, Proctor, which is on the west side of the lake, get on another boat, a connecting boat and go up to Caslow. And he said, we'd spend the night at Caslow and he couldn't remember where, but probably a hotel. Then next morning they'd get on the train in the cusp and in the cusp they would get on a connecting steamboat that afternoon and go to Halcyon. And that was the only way you could get there in those days because the roads had not been constructed. On the return trip, they went from Halcyon on, uh, back to Nacusp on, on the steamboat. Then they went from uh, Nacusp, instead of going back to Caslow, they went to, to a place called Rosebury, which is on Slocan Lake. And on Slocan Lake at Rosebury, they got on the SS Slocan, which is another stern wheeler. Right slide Slocan Lake and they got off in Slocan City, hopped on another train, went to Nelson, and in Nelson they got on the Greyhound and went back to Gray Creek because Greyhound was established, uh, Canadian Greyhound was established in Nelson back in the 1920s. You know, we really can't complain <laughs> in this day and age. So it was really an interesting way of getting around and, and you know, people enjoyed the fact that they could absolutely go anywhere. When did the Rocky Mountaineer come in play? And how did that, was it bought out or was it changed over as a passenger train throughout the years? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a confusion between the Mountaineer and the Rocky Mountaineer. The Mountaineer was a Sioux Line train that came out of Chicago, Minneapolis and Sioux Line being owned by CP. It came through to Banff and then to Vancouver in summer months only. Um, it disappeared in 1963, 64. Uh, the Rocky Mountaineer, as we know it today, is a privately owned tourist train that comes from Vancouver to Banff and also Vancouver to Jasper, Vancouver, Banff, Calgary. 
And uh, it was initially started by Zia Rail back in the uh, 1980s. But when the um, Canadian government of the day decided to privatize some of Zia Rail, um, a group from uh, Vancouver led by a gentleman by the name of Peter Armstrong, they bought that service called the Rocky Mountaineer, which was a summer all daylight train from Vancouver to Banff and Calgary. Uh, and they only travel in the daytime. There's no sleeping accommodation on it. Day one, you go to Kamloops and overnight in hotels there. And day two, uh, uh, the train splits. Part of it goes to Jasper, the other part of it goes to Banff and Calgary. And it's become hugely popular and it's been upgraded significantly to these terrific uh, two-decker cars that they have. And it's really quite a wondrous sight. Yeah. Transparency skylights. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I was in High River over, huh, I think it was yeah, Canada Day. I was in High River. I saw one of the old stations there and had brunch in an old dining car. Oh, yeah. That was neat. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I was a kid, you know, that's how we traveled. That was, uh, you know, in the 50s and, uh, and the 60s when I was still in, in Banff going to school or mm. whatever. My dad had a long service pass. He worked for the CP Rail for... Uh, 50 years and uh, anytime we went anywhere including just to Calgary or on a holiday we always went in the train and when I was a kid I could hardly wait to go on a holiday I didn't care where we were going I just wanted to get on the train for that reason part of the experience with the dining car and the observation car and all the different people you met uh, it was fantastic you know back then when you went on a vacation 50% of the vacation was the journey to get there and you really enjoyed meeting all the new people and so on and so forth. Whereas today you sit on an airplane for a couple hours and you don't talk to anybody, then you get to where you're going. That whole traveling experience in my mind is gone, you know? You're right. I mean, yeah, you sit next to someone awkwardly, you guys don't really look at each other, you just stare straight on the screen and yeah, it's, yeah, it's different. Well, also on a train, you got much more room and you can move around and you're not strapped in, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. When you, Look back at history and life. If your parents were here today, Terry, what would they they understand of this world and, and knowing their son now has created, well, almost three books now? Well, um, if they were magically to reappear, which would be wonderful, uh, I think my dad would still be shaking his head when he sees going around. And I think, you know, he was a very social guy. Yeah. And, um, Today's world is not so social. It's sort of uh, involved with me, 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 and uh, a lot of uh, the social, the sociality or the lack of is, you know, the is the internet. And uh, I think it's really destroyed the social structure of our civilization to some degree. Not entirely, but you know, uh, I always love those pictures of people sitting in together at a dinner in a restaurant. Nobody's talking to each other. They're all on the phone. To me, that says it all. Have you gone back to Banff, to the station, and reminisced in the last 20 years or so? Just oh, yeah, often. In fact, um, um, I spent a lot of time at the station in the last few years. Uh, I love going back there. You know, it was my first home. And as a kid, I could never imagine we'd ever have to leave there. 
but we did when my dad retired. But I've been back and I've visited often with uh, Jan and uh, Adam Watrous, who are the folks that have the lease and who are proposing the high-speed rail from Calgary Airport to Banff. And I've spent a lot of time at the station there. I just love it. I'm sure, and all the memories of the boy growing up and dad. Well, yeah, aside, not only the rail portion of it, but across the tracks, there was a big bush. And we used to call it the station bush. And there was two creeks that flowed through there, Whiskey Creek and 40 Mile Creek. And in those days, they were loaded with fish. I mean, it was our, it was our playground for many of us in Banff in those days, uh, the school kids. And Wait. that's what we called it, it was the station bush. So you're not saying it's an iPad as your playground? It's, it's a pretty big one if it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mom and dad, probably Terry, are now passed away. And when you look back at life, do they often come through your mind as a remembrance, as a memory, as appreciation of who the man you are today? You know, we have a pretty close family. There's five of us, um, uh, boys and girls. And... Um, we were also a fairly close-knit family. I think large families usually are, actually. Right. But um, um, we, uh, yeah, it, 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 was, it was a super support system. But, you know, I'll tell you something interesting. Back when I was a kid, even when I was six or seven years old when I first started school, in the summers or on the weekends, we'd get up, we'd have breakfast, and it was out the door. I mean, we didn't hang around. There was no iPads or anything like that. We were out the door and we went to find our friends to go and play. And you know, when we went out that door, the only thing my parents ever, or my mom ever told me was, now don't be late for dinner. And off we went. And we went over to that station bush or wherever it was we were going that day, maybe fishing on the Bow River. Uh, we'd, we'd take a lunch with us and out the door, we were gone. I mean, every kid in Banff was the same. Uh, we had no instructions, don't do this, don't do that, because, you know, they knew where we were going and what we were doing, and they didn't worry about us over in the bush where there may be bears, and there were. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, there was a lot of common knowledge floating around in those days. And there were certain times in the spring when you didn't go there, because you knew they might be around scrounging for food or whatever. You just sort of, I don't know, it was, it, it was just a, a communal upbringing. And everybody in the community kind of watched out for everybody else. So it was a different world. There's, there's no two ways about it. What made you move to the Kootenays from a beautiful place like Banff? Well, in 1993, um, I had been working at Brewster's. I was VP marketing and sales there. And I took a job with Rocky Mountaineer. And that was in Vancouver. And I moved out there in 1993. Uh, a couple of years later, I was uh, approached by uh, a fellow by the name of Judd Buchanan, who had been a cabinet minister at one time in his career. And he had been approached to start a, an association called the Canadian Tourism Commission, which would be driven by the private sector to market Canada. So I was kind of parachuted into that organization in Ottawa. And I was there for a few years until we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. And at which time I had a friend of mine approach me wanting to know if I would like to be a partner, the managing partner of a bus operation in Trail, British Columbia. And I was, I was interested and I, I came out to the Kootenays and instantly fell in love. 
and um, moved to trail in 1998. Wow. And over the years now you're in Caslow. Is that going to be home, you think? Or are you going to move back to Banff or Caslow's? Well, no, I won't be going back to Banff. You know, Banff uh, is not the Banff I remember. I mean, I'll love Banff forever, but it's too big. It's too busy. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's I, I like Banff in November because then you get a chance to see somebody who's from Banff. You could wander around town in Banff in uh, July and August, and you might not see anybody you know, you know. They're probably smart enough to stay off the streets. <laughs> when you look at trains today, do you still get excited as you watched oh, it? Every time I see a train, I want to stop and watch it. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's kind of interesting that you know, North America is probably the only continent left now that doesn't have a superior system of passenger train transportation. You know, you go to Europe, oh, you go to Asia, it's trains that link everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I realize that part of the reason why we don't have those, what I would call more sophisticated trains now is because, you know, it's a huge area in Canada with a low population. And if you don't have a big population, uh, passenger trains probably won't work. And everybody's in a hurry. It's a big country. You know, it's not like going from one side of France to Germany. Exactly. You know, I can remember when I was a young fella, I'd be in Europe on business. And I can remember in my history classes in high school, I would say about how they, in World War II, how these armies were marching across Europe. And as a young fella, I mean, I had the same idea of distance as I did my perspective in Canada. On the other hand, you go to Europe and if you get in a car and start driving, in eight hours, you can be in five countries. And that's probably when it, I became aware about the massive difference, you know, just in land mass. And it's so quick. I mean, France to Germany. Yeah, I did that in 07. Boom, I was just right there. Great. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Is there any places that actually have cabooses and locomotives around where we can see what it was like. Now you can start with Heritage Park. Well, that's in Calgary. That's where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, they have the train set there that they operate. And in fact, on Labor Day weekend every year, their big sort of summer wind-up event is called Railway Days. And that'll be this year on over Labor Day weekend, September 3rd and 4th, I think is a Saturday and Sunday. And they have train rides and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, if you want to see some of that old fashioned railway equipment, it's right there. They got steam engines that pull the train around the park and they've got a, a, a mark or they've got a, a, about a three quarter size stern wheeler on the lake that was styled after the SS Moye, which is one of the big stern wheelers that plied the waters of Kootenai Lake up, right up until 1957 actually. It's really a neat place to go. I was at Stampede Park, well, growing up there, going on field trips there as a young boy. Uh, there's a place called the Green Academy. And yep. we used to go in there and there was this train set that would just absolutely mesmerize me. And um, growing up, you know, you'd have a plywood and start building train sets. I used to do that with my dad. It was something I really enjoyed. Did you ever get into train sets or enjoy those kind of hobbies? When I was a kid at the Banff station, uh, my brother, four years older than me, um, he built a, uh, a model railroad oh, wow. in the basement at the station. Uh, 
the, the room downstairs that, in the basement of the station had been the old coal furnace and the coal storage. And then in the early 50s, when the gas pipeline came to Banff, all that was converted to natural gas. So all that old coal storage area that was now emptied and cleaned out. And my brother Fred, he went ahead and he built a railroad so and it used to go around the, the big furnace and everything. And he did a masterful job of it. And anytime they needed to find us, it was usually in the winter. If we weren't outside, we were down in the basement playing with that train set. Yeah, we loved it. What do you think about Prairie Link? Well, I sure hope it proceeds. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what the future would apply for Banff. It's getting to the point where it's just so fiercely busy in the summer and traffic is a huge, huge concern. Uh, and it would be nice to be able to get some of those cars, keep them out of the park and rail trans transportation certainly is one of the big answers. Um, I think the other thing that Banff has suffers from is back in the early 50s, they made the decision to pound the uh, Trans-Canada Highway through the middle of the National Park. And in those days, everybody was on board. It was going to create jobs. It was going to do this and do that. But I'll bet if the powers that be could go back in time and maybe figure out a different route, mm -hmm. it might not have gone through the middle of the National Park, you know? <laughs> because it's a, as long as there's a Trans-Canada Highway, yeah. it was always gonna be extremely busy. Mm -hmm. Almost to the point some days, as I'm sure you know, of being overrun, you know? It's exhausting. You know, I, I look at, or I go, or driving through Rogers Pass, or I was in Waterton over my birthday in July, and they built a, a hotel for the CP Rail, uh, Prince of Wales. And you're just so mesmerized as the, the workmanship, the craftsmanship. There was no technology back then. This was all hand-drawn. This was built by hand. Um, are we losing that touch of history? Is it slowly fading? And is this also another reason that you created this book is because history itself is going and everyone's about the now and the instant gratification and forgetting the past of why we are where we are today. You know, I saw an interesting thing uh, the other day, I don't know if it was on Facebook or where it was, but it was uh, saying that when an old person dies, another history book has been destroyed. True. I think that we don't have enough uh, documentation. And, and as a matter of fact, one of the motivating factors for me to write the book when trains ruled the Kootenays was I came here in 1998 to the Kootenays and I was unaware of much of what had happened here between 1888 when they discovered silver and Nelson and the next 50 years. Uh, and as I started to do a little bit of reading and talk to people and find things out, I was absolutely astounded at what they had achieved here. And like you say, with pickaxes, dynamite and labor, uh, they, built, they built these incredible, incredible um, stern wheelers on the shore. Uh, the shipyards in Nelson is on the shore of Kootenay Lake as is the old Great Northern Shipyard is at Mirror Lake, which is near Caslow. And they built these magnificent uh, ships and it was from the timber of the area, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of that has disappeared, uh, understandably, with the advances made in technology. But I think that one of the things that has disappeared along with it is is the sense of community. 
And, uh, but anyhow, to get back to the, to the, what I was saying is that I started to realize how much had happened here that nobody seemed to know anything about, including myself. And the more I researched, the more I realized that there was a book here and I just wanted to do my little bit to pass along some history of the area because it really is fascinating. No, I appreciate it. So Terry, you know, we talked a lot about the CP rail. What about the CN railway system? Well, Canadian National has never been a, of a huge uh, subject of interest to me, um, not, not because it isn't a, an incredible feat, but you know, it, it, it was a combination of a number of different railroads that eventually the government stepped in and took over because they were all going bankrupt. Um, for instance, the, the western part of, of, of what is now CN from Winnipeg to the coast was initially two railroads. One was the Canadian Northern and the other was the Grand Trunk and Pacific. Um, Canadian Northern built right through Jasper as did uh, Grand Trunk and Pacific, but the Canadian Northern continued west and went to Prince Rupert uh, because it was closer to the Orient um, than the port of Vancouver, for instance, by a number of hours sailing. And the, the Grand Trunk and Pacific uh, went down the, the Fraser River as did the Canadian Pacific to Vancouver. And they sort of served the northern tier of the provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta because as you know, CP was Southern Alberta, Southern Saskatchewan. And in 1919, uh, both railroads had gone broke. And in order not to lose them, uh, Canadian Pacific initially put in a bid to buy them, but the federal government in those days didn't want a monopoly. And they took it over themselves and they changed it. Um, the Grand Trunk they amalgamated with uh, a line that the government had already been built um, back in Ontario way prior to that. And they amalgamated the Canadian Northern, the Grand Trunk and Pacific, and they renamed it the Canadian National. Okay. And so that was sort of the, that's a short history of the Canadian National. I miss seeing photos and videos of what the trains used to look like, the passenger trains. So like the Canadian Pacific was all, well, I guess, aluminum-like body. Well, that was their last addition to the passenger service. It was called the Canadian. And that livery, that those rail cars still run on the CN line across Canada, and, they, and it's still called the Canadian, and it's operated by Via Rail, which is a government crown corporation. So all that livery on the Canadians, that beautiful stainless steel with dome cars and all of that, that was all built in the 50s by the Bud Car Company in the United States. And it's been refurbished and rebuilt a number of times, but that's where that that became that came from what they called the area the era of the streamliner. Okay. Prior to that, most of the rail car, railway cars are well, what they were called were heavyweights, and they were built out of slab steel. And CP's color was um, their trains prior to the Canadian, which was stainless steel. Their trains were painted in Tuscan red, okay. and um, to the north of Great Northern, they had sort of a gray and green color combination, which had changed a number of times over the years, but they were distinctly, distinctly different. <laughs> I think it was Barney and Smith, right? 
that had created the passenger trains or they were known for the fabrication? Well, they were they were one of the first uh, deluxe car makers uh, and and um, they were located in the United States and, and many of their uh, trains, for instance, uh, the, the first um, Sioux Spokane train deluxe, it was called, that went from Minneapolis up to the Canadian Pacific Main Line at Moose Jaw, coming up through North Dakota, and then through the Crow's Nest Pass and then down to Spokane. Barney and Smith built six train sets for the CP and the Sioux. And at the time, they were the most advanced cars in North America. That was in 1906. They were the first rail cars to have electric lights throughout because prior to that, the passenger train lights were gas lights uh, inside the cars. And they had these beautiful upholstered uh, teak and mahogany inlaid bedrooms. And uh, they were really, really fantastic cars. That's beautiful. When you look at the system today, the railway system in Canada, can it be better? Is there certain things we can add to it, remove certain tracks, certain paths? And is that ever feasible or is it just more of a, a fantasy land? Of it? Well, you know, I think that the railways, they got a pretty good idea of what they're doing. And, you know, like Canadian Pacific and Canadian National, they're freight railways today. They have absolutely no interest in passenger service. And in fact, they offloaded their passenger train service entirely onto the government entity that they created uh, back in the late 60s called Via Rail. And finally, Via Rail absorbed Canadian Pacific trains in 1978, I believe it was. So they've gotten out of the passenger business because, you know, they could see that there was no money in it anymore uh, because, uh, you know, because of highways, because of airlines and all of that, the long distance travel. Uh, of that era was not going to come back, except in, 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 in tourist applications, you know, like the Canadian runs across Canada today from Toronto to Vancouver, and it goes through Winnipeg up to Jasper to the coast. Uh, it's no longer what I would call a transportation train. It's a tourist train. Tourist, tourist. Same with them, uh, Rocky Mountain near. Now, yep. are they on different rails for the listeners or are they on the same rails as CP would use for freight? Well, the, the Rocky Mountaineer uh, travels uh, mostly on CN lines to Kamloops, but from Kamloops to Banff and Calgary, of course, it's on CP lines. CP, yeah. When they go from Kamloops up to Jasper, well, the only line is Canadian National. And when the Canadian travels across Canada, it's largely on the Canadian National line because at one time, Via Rail was a creature of Canadian National Railways, and then they wanted to get out of that business too. So they formed Via Rail Canada, which is a government crown corporation. Understanding the station of Banff and the history of Banff, I get that. But how did you start researching and saying, let me look through the Kootenays and the southeastern side of British Columbia? And now, not only that, your third book's going to be from Spokane upwards. How do you just start driving around, Terry? What do you do? Well, we're fortunate that we have these things called archives. And for instance, the White Museum in Banff, uh, the, the, the museum and the archives there is an absolutely fantastic facility. And it has much more in the archives than just Banff. Um, similarly, in Calgary, you've got the Glenbow Foundation and the Glenbow Museum and Archives, which has now been transferred 
up to a facility at the University of Calgary. I mean, the archives part of it. In Edmonton, you've got the, the provincial archives in Edmonton, which is an absolutely fascinating place. You want to know anything? Go there. Uh, also, recently, you know, for my book, When Trains Ruled the Kootenays, a tremendous amount of my research was done right here. The archives in Nelson is called Touchstones Museum. It's got a fantastic uh, collection of the old photographs, many of which I used. It's got all the copies of the Nelson Daily Herald, that, which in, in, in its day was one of the most uh, famous newspapers in Western Canada. For instance, the eastbound, uh, they called it the uh, Kettle Valley Express that went from Nelson to Lethbridge to Medicine Hat where it joined the Canadian Pacific mainline. It couldn't leave Nelson until all of the the, 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 the Nelson Daily News had been printed and was loaded on the train. They had a huge distribution into Alberta and East. And the reason for that was, uh, to go back to our earlier conversation, was that Nelson uh, was the headquarters for the mining industry in British Columbia. So all the most recent transactions, stock trades, this and that, were probably more detailed in the Nelson Daily News than in any other newspaper in Canada. Nelson's one of my favorite towns in British Columbia. But whoever thought that town today was this hub back then? Yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, it was a hub for the trains, for the stern wheelers. The shipbuilding yards were here. Uh, all of the ore was set down to trail to the smelter there. Uh, they discovered the Sullivan mine in, in Kimberley in the late 1890s. And it was, it operated right up until the early 2000s. It was one of the largest single deposits of galena, which is an ore that can fill and contain silver, lead, and zinc in the world. And um, the amount of ore that came out of that mine is staggering. They even have an electric railway that went inside the mine. It was underground to haul the stuff back out. And of course, the train network was, was built to support that to get it all to the, to the smelter. Terry, you talk about insurement of a friend of yours that you had spoken with in regards to Japan and their importance in, or I guess their connections to the railway system. Do you want to let the listeners know a little bit about that? I think you're talking about the internment camps and yes. uh, yeah, well, you know, during the second world war it's probably one or it was one of the least attractive pages in our history. Of course. You know, the, the Japanese Canadians were First of all, all from all over the province were moved into a, the Hastings Park in Vancouver and their temporary residence uh, was the horse stalls and things like that in Hastings Park mm -hmm. where they were, they were, well, it was literally a concentration camp, wasn't it? And uh, the Japanese Canadians, they not only lost their homes, but their businesses. You know, some of the biggest fishing fleets were owned by the Japanese uh, in Vancouver area and uh, you know I have a good friend of mine um, that gave me much of the information about the chapter that I wrote about the internment camps his name is uh, Ken Chimizu uh, he was he was uh, brought up in one of those camps in the 40s and uh, you know they were from Prince Rupert and his dad and his dad's partner they owned a hotel and a cafe they not only lost the hotel, the cafe, and the residence and got nothing for it, but all of their personal possessions 
that they couldn't put into a few suitcases when they got put in these trains and sent to Hastings Park. And in Hastings Park, they had a facility for the men and for the women and their daughters to live in and the, and the young kids. They had to clean out the old horse stables and that became their, their residence. They were there for six months. In the meantime, um, they, they sent a lot of the uh, Japanese men as carpenters out to places like Greenwood, uh, Grand Forks, Caslow, um, to New Denver. Slocane City, and they rebuilt some of these old mining homes that were now vacant because, you know, the, the mining boom was over. And they sent all these Japanese, thousands of them, to these internment camps. And they were there uh, right up until the end of, uh, and, and beyond the end of World War II. Um, it wasn't for about another 50 years after that that the Canadian government finally recognized and apologized. That was uh, Mulroney, I think it was, back in the Brian Mulroney, yes. But it was, it was a horrendous chapter and it was followed shortly thereafter, although the, I did, this isn't in the book, um, uh, by the internment of, of, of the Dukabors uh, in that same area. You know, it was, it was really a tragic time in our, in our history. And, uh, and Grand Forks is known for that, right? The Dukabors, that's what they're primarily known for. The Dukabors in Grand Forks area? That's well, you know, the Dukabors came to Canada. That's another interesting story, and somebody has probably written a book about it. <laughs> but, you know, the Dukabors um, are from Russia initially. And a guy by the name of Leo Tolstoy, he was one of the major fundraisers to get him out of Russia because of the religious persecution that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, they lived communally. And um, I guess the Tsar didn't like that very much. Anyhow, in 1899, the first, uh, a lot of the Dukabor community, not 100% of it, but a huge chunk of it, arrived in Halifax. Okay. And um, a lot of it was financed for the, by Leo Tolstoy, the famous author. And they initially moved to a place in Saskatchewan. And there's a, a site there still, it's called Verigan, Saskatchewan, because their, their spiritual leader was Peter Verigan. Hmm. Um, over the next few years, most of them migrated to the Kootenays, uh, where they became, you know, the, there was an opportunity there with the building of the railroads and the mines, um, a lot of market gardens. That's that's largely how they made their living was agriculture, right. and they spread from the Castlegar area as far as Grand Forks. So yeah, it's uh, the concentration of the Dukabors was was in the Kootenays and right over to Grand Forks, which is on the edge of the Kootenays in what's now called Boundary County. 20, 30 years from now, if someone's looking and stumbles across your book, what do you hope people get from your books, Terry? Well, I just hope that there'll be an understanding of this. This is what happened. You know, I mean, it did happen. And, you know, in my, it, I can go back to the 50s and 60s when I was in school. I never heard about any of this. I had no idea of the importance of that part of British Columbia to the economy of Canada or how that part of the West was settled or, you know, it just wasn't. It seems to me when I was in school that the history of Canada ended at the Saskatchewan border. It was Ontario, Quebec, Upper and Lower Canada, and the Red River Settlement in Manitoba. And after that, nothing else happened, you know. 
That's exactly what I learned about. Yeah, the Hudson Bay and <laughs> the company and the fur trading and that's all. Exactly. You're yeah, right. Yeah. You know, if I didn't read your book, Terry, I wouldn't have known all this too. So thank you so much for this. Well, it's my pleasure. One of the quotes here says by Van Horn, nothing is too small to know and nothing is too big to attempt. What does that mean to you? Well, it means to me that back then we had real entrepreneurs. Um, you know, he, 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 Van Horn was a guy that, I think he was extremely intelligent, obviously. He was an incredible right. railway guy, but he also was a visionary. You know, he had this vision of one of his other famous quotes is, if we can't export the scenery, we'll import the tourists. And that was on that basis to get people on his rail line that he decided they had to have the Canadian Pacific resorts. Um, you know, that were right across the country from the Algonquin in, in um, New Brunswick to the uh, Chateau Frontenac in, uh, um, in Quebec. But, you know, the, the major resorts in the Canadian Rockies were the first ones built. The first one was uh, Mount Stephen House and Field and Glacier Park and, and, and the Glacier Lodge uh, at the base of the Illinois Glacier in the Rogers Pass. Right. followed by the Banff Springs and then the Chateau Lake Louise, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Um, and then he also had the vision to realize that in order to make this all work, it was fine to have people coming across the Atlantic on his steamboats because he also had CP ships that he and Thomas Shaughnessy, his right-hand man started in the 1890s and early 1900s. But he knew that the big feed had to come out of the United States because that's where the big money was. And that's where the upper end of the carriage trade was located. And uh, he knew that without that support in the States that a lot of these resorts just wouldn't work. And that was probably one of the big reasons why they went after the Sioux Line. Because the Sioux Line built these famous trains to Canada that served for 60 and 70 years. You know, you think you build a railway, that's big enough. <laughs> when yeah, you start exactly. thinking about resorts and... Yeah. I suspect in today's political climate, uh, where we decide to build a Canadian Pacific Railway, it could never happen. No. I'm Everybody's going to be offended by something. <laughs> yeah. There'd be a stop every way, every... Yeah, you couldn't do it. Yeah, it's interesting. People were more motivated then, I think, or there was hope. I don't know. What, was there hope? Is that what it was you saw in people? I, I think there's an awful lot of people coming to Canada from other countries in the world with the hope of a better life and bigger dreams and that, you know, that maybe I could actually have something or accomplish something. Yeah. Because in a lot of those old, older settlements in other parts of the world, you know, you knew your position and you better stick to it sort of thing, huh? It's all right. Yeah. It's a land of opportunity, Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's a beautiful place to call home. And, uh, I can't wait to read your other book now, Terry. Well, I've got, like I say, the two of them are in print. Yes. And uh, the third one will be coming out in September of right. next year, 2023. What era would this be right here? That was the first train uh, in the Kootenays. It was 1894, and it came from what is now Castlegar to Nelson. Huh. Do you have a favorite locomotive before we get going? Well, I always, uh, you know, and there's one of them on display out at Heritage Park, the 5900s, they were called the oh, Selkirks. Yes. 
I love those. And you know, they used to put them on in Calgary for the hall over what they call the Big Hill, which is the Rockies. So the 5900s, they had five drive wheels and they were huge, powerful. They were the biggest, uh, most powerful steam engines in the British Empire at the time, when it was still called an empire. And uh, they used to operate exclusively between Calgary and Revelstoke. Then in Revelstoke, they would take them off and put on a, an engine that had larger wheels, which would mean it would go faster, but it didn't have to do the heavy pulling over the Rockies. No, it's just so cool to see where we've come <laughs> and just the history and how they built these things with manpower. I, can't even, I, I often wonder, you know, uh, the, you know, we seem to be, in today's world, it's like if you, if anything happened before you were born, it didn't exist. Because I keep seeing things on the internet or whatever about uh, recycling or this or that. Well, we did all of that when I was a kid before. I mean, it was just what you did. Everybody had a compost heap. Uh, when you went shopping, you didn't have paper bags. You had your own basket. Uh, you know, we kind of knew what was going on. And then we lost track of it. Now it's back. And that's like the third generation invented all this stuff. It's been around forever. It's almost like you said about the common sense. Don't go out in springtime when the bears are out. Yeah, Thanks, Chips. Uh, you know, that's when they're hungriest. <laughs> and that's when they're having cubs. And that's when they're more protective. You know, I mean, uh, I think, I think, I think what I saw on apparently truthful television, if that's possible, one night, the guy was interviewing people coming out of the supermarket. And it wasn't in the United States. We always like to kick the United States, but it was in Canada back east, asking people uh, where their food came from. And I was, I was, uh, well, I don't think appalled. In fact, I was more amused by some of the answers because you know all food is made in the warehouse behind Safeway. <laughs> Milk? Oh no, they make it behind there. You know things like that. I just made me shake my head thinking what the hell has happened <laughs> society what's going on <laughs> i mean i don't know if it was you know, it, it, it claimed to be a an on the street interviewer that was getting real time answers mm -hmm. uh, and i i can i can i can imagine it i was in sycamore so i went to the district museum their their historical museum yeah they had a a station back in the day no longer exists had you ever visited it or have you seen it before? I haven't been to the one in Sycamore, but a lot of those old railway stations all through this area have been preserved and rebuilt. Like Nelson did a super job on theirs. Midway, which is the west of Castle Gar, about, uh, oh, well, Midway, it's Midway between uh, Alberta and Vancouver. That's hence the name, but it, the Midway Station, the museum, they've, they've resurrected all these buildings, rebuilt them and turned them into museums. Uh, there's a number of them all through the area. Yeah. You know, when you're crossing over the marina on the bridge, there's the railway or the train going right across from Mara Lake and Shushwap. That's just such a beautiful sight to see the trains going, the semis going this way. And it's, yeah, yeah. Something about it. Transportation. If you, if you go ever get to Caslo, uh, they, they, the, the SS Moye was built in 1894. Okay. And it served on Kootenay Lake until 1957. Wow. And there's a replica of it at Heritage Park. But that's the replica, not the original. It's about half the size. 
But the, the SS Moye has been put up on a cradle on the shore and it's been preserved. Uh, and it's sort of the historic landmark in Caslo uh, because this was one of the big ports on uh, for the mining and all of that on, on Kootenai mm -hmm. Lake. You know, Kootenai Lake is like an inland sea. It's 120 kilometers long and in spots it's up to 10K wide. It's a big, big lake. Wow. And it was sort of the inland waterway, the inland highway of southeastern British Columbia. Well, if I'm ever in Caslo, Terry, I'm giving you a call. <laughs> do it, do it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Terry, for this. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.